Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our focus today is on a new technology that falls into a category of brand that I referred to in my recent book, Reframing Healthcare, as, as sort of the care coordination platform. It's a platform or a brand that, that automatically provides much needed real-time connectivity, integration, and analysis of information, communication between providers that works in different and across different organizations. And its purpose is really to vastly improve care, to make it more proactive, preventive, coordinated, seamless. Many of us assume that that's the way care is now, what we in the business call interoperability, but it's simply not the case. And this is the reason I'm so glad, and we are so fortunate to have our guest on the program today, Jay Desai. Jay is the co-founder and the CEO of a company called Patient Ping, which he founded in 2013. And if you haven't heard of this company, if you haven't heard of Jay Desai yet, I think you're in for a treat. I personally would take notes on this one. And having said that, you know, even if you haven't heard of him yet, I am certain that you will be hearing about Jay and his company, uh, Patient Ping, and what they're doing. Jay started Patient Ping, as I said, in 2013 with really the goal to connect providers everywhere to provide seamless, coordinated patient care. Prior to founding Patient Ping, Jay worked at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, their innovation center, the so-called CMMI where he helped develop ACOs, accountable care organizations, uh, bundled payments, and other value-based payment initiatives. Jay's passion, his professional passion, lies at that intersection of technology, policy, and community building, which I, I think is really intriguing, and I'd love to find out more about that sort of intersections, particularly the, the focus on community. Jay has an MBA in healthcare management from Wharton and a BA from the University of Michigan. He is apparently an avid runner. He loves music, and he really, really enjoys spending time with his family and friends. So Jay, um, before we get into it, how are you doing today? We haven't spoken in a long time. I'm so, so excited to speak with you today. Yeah, thanks so much, Seth, for having me. Um, I'm, I'm doing great. So Jay, can you, uh, if we were on an elevator and uh, we were in a sky rise uh, in, in Boston and we were going from the top to the bottom. So you maybe had a, a minute and a half to two minutes and you were trying to explain to me uh, a high level overview of patient paying. How would you explain what its functionality is, what it serves to do, who it helps? Yeah, absolutely. So we are a care coordination platform that allows providers who all see any given patient to work together. And we have two products that allow us to do that. One is pings. And PINGS is a service that notifies providers in real time when their patients show up anywhere. Um, so that could be a primary care provider or an ACO care coordinator, and their patient shows up in the emergency room or the inpatient setting or a skilled nursing facility or start services at home care. Wherever the patient goes, we'll notify the provider uh, in real time when that happens. So that's PINGS. PINGS tells you where your patients are. Uh, our second product is Stories. Stories tell you where your patients have been. So if a patient, so just using the analog of a patient as uh, ACO care coordinator, getting a ping that the patient's in the emergency room, uh, at the emergency room, what we would deliver is the story that says, hey, this patient's ACO is, say, um, Atrium Health, and their prior providers are, you know, Dr. So-and-so, and they may be the, the primary care provider. They may have a care coordinator assigned to them. Uh, any prior ED visits that they've had or prior post-acute utilization, any other useful information from typically outside of that emergency room that will package into a story that's useful kind of clinical and administrative context to support that patient's care while they're in the ED. So it's two, two sides to, to the experience, pings, stories. It gets everybody connected and working on a common platform. I want to dive in a moment a little bit more into that. What what does that look like in terms of if I'm a provider, whether I'm in the primary care side or a specialist, as well as you mentioned the ED and how that, you know, examples of how this sort of helps and how it actually works. But before we do that, 
What led you to think about this idea, this company, this product and service, uh, the two parts to it? What problem or, or need did you see in the healthcare market that you were responding to? What gap are you trying to fill? What problem are you trying to solve? And, and I'm, I'm curious, did it emerge from your time at uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid? Absolutely. As you, as you said, um, Zeb, during the very generous and, and kind introduction, I worked at CMMI where I helped with a really extraordinary team design and, and implement the ACO program, the bundled payment program, and a number of the other new payment models. I worked a lot on the ACO program, particularly the Pioneer ACO. And at Medicare, we were trying to solve for the two-thirds of Medicare patients who weren't in Medicare Advantage. So these are the traditional fee-for-service Part A, Part B patients. And we were trying to find a way to put them into risk uh, arrangements with providers, you know, any value-based care arrangement. ACO was the answer to that. And the big difference between Medicare Advantage and ACO, there's many, um, but one of the big ones is that in Medicare Advantage, you as the Medicare beneficiary actually enroll, you subscribe to, to sign up for Medicare Advantage. If you're in fee-for-service and you get in an ACO, you get attributed to the ACO. So we look at where you've received your primary care at Medicare, and then we would tell that primary care doctor and the group that they're a part of that this is now your, your patient that you're accountable for. So when you set up that type of an environment where the provider is at risk for the patient, the patient doesn't always know about it. And they don't really have the type of control that Medicare Advantage plans often give to their providers, which is prior authorization, narrowing of networks, very tight kind of utilization management protocols, primary care as a gatekeeper, differential co-pays when patients travel outside the network. So when you're in that type of an arrangement, you're taking risk and your patients show up all over the place, it becomes very difficult to coordinate that care. So let's say you're a health system in North Carolina and you've got an ACO population and your patient shows up at a competitor ED or a hospital, and then they go from there to skilled nursing or they go to home care. You have no idea that's happening because you don't have any control over that out of network care, yet you're accountable for the cost. So a lot of the providers were coming to us at Medicare and saying, hey, we need to know where our patients are in real time. Otherwise, we can't actually do anything about it. And the claims data that you're giving us Medicare is way too slow. The whole episode has already happened. The patient's been released from the uh, hospital. They've you know, incurred a number of expenditures that we could have possibly avoided uh, had we had our case managers uh, supporting that care. So I just kept hearing that over and over again, a very simple problem, which is I just need to know where my patients are. It, you know, It's got to be in real time and didn't really see very compelling solutions uh, to meet that need. You know, We looked at uh, a number of different approaches to try to solve that problem at the government, and none of them felt complete enough. So I left. Um, this was back in 2013, and I had been thinking about the problem for probably eight to 10 months while I was at Medicare, and after realizing that there weren't good solutions, I decided to leave and, and, and build patient pain. Now, how big a problem is this for, in your observation, both at the Centers for Medicare Medicaid Innovation Center, and now that you're, you've been doing this for five, six years, what percentage of, let's say you have a hospital system or a provider group, what percentage of their patients or, or the patient's you know, total spend is outside of their domain? Great question. So originally I thought, well, maybe this isn't that big of a problem because if you're a big health system, how big of a problem really is the leakage? But one of the things that I found was that even for the largest health systems, major health systems in not too uh, competitive markets, so think, you know, Intermountain or Geisinger, uh, so that that's in more rural markets. But, but if you take that to, say, a partner's healthcare in Massachusetts or Baylor Scott & White in one of the Texas markets that they're in, I was seeing that on the Medicare population and on the Medicaid population in particular, it's a highly transient population. So the leakage was still 30, 40% sometimes on the inpatient and the ED side. It just patients go where they're going to go, wherever it's most convenient, wherever the specialist or the, the primary care doctor sends a referral or where the specialist can do a surgery or, or procedure. And so it's, it's a, it was a pervasive problem for large health systems. But if you then, even if you exclude the large health systems, there's a lot of provider organizations who are trying to take longitudinal responsibility to coordinate the care for the patients wherever they go. So now if you're talking about independent physician organizations, 
you know, that don't have any hospitals connected to them. Now, all of the care in the inpatient setting is leakage. And so they may set up a few preferred networks with a couple of hospitals that they have a close affiliation with where they send a lot of volume and they may get some data sharing back and forth, but that will represent some minority or, you know, some percentage of their overall uh, volume for the patient's code. Now that's just on the acute, on the hospital and the ED side. When you go into the skilled nursing and the home care, there's hundreds of post-acute facilities where the, the patients go to. And so if you're a large health system, you may own one or two, you know, SNFs or home health agencies and have, you know, some long-term care beds in your, in your health system. So for the post-acute care, virtually all of it is out of network. And, you know, as I also realized that it wasn't just ACOs that wanted to know where their patients were. It was skilled nursing facilities that may have finished their rehab, patient went home, and then they bounce back to the ER. Well, that, that's an opportunity for continuity of care. It's not just you don't have to be taking risk on the patient to want to sort of resume care for the patient if you're the right provider to deliver the, the continuity of care. Home care agencies, if you start services on a Monday and, you know, uh, the patient ends up back in the emergency room because a child panics and sends them back to the ER, but they forget to tell the home care aide, well, that's a vacant visit that they could have avoided if they knew that the patient was back in the ER. And if the ER knew that the patient was receiving, say, VNA or some home care services, that often would solve a lot of the care coordination failures where they set them up on new home care. They didn't realize that they already had a provider and, and you know, and then just some of the, the sticky communication failures start, you know, start popping up. I, I think this is, you know, this is a, a topic, unless you're in population health or in very much in, in the thick of value-based contracts or, or decapitated care. I, I know when I was in Boston and I was in a, a organization that uh, for the most part took capitated payments. So you got paid a certain amount per patient per month. And most of our patients and most of our revenue came through that. The, the challenge with patients going outside of our system was there were multiple challenges with that. Number one, to your point, from a clinical perspective, they're out of the system. They're going to a different hospital. We're not aware of it, or they're going to a different emergency room, or like you say, even outside of the scope with nursing homes. And, and they're getting cared for, and we're not able to coordinate that. We're not able to evaluate it. They lose the context of all that knowledge that our clinicians and clinical teams knew about the patients. And so from a clinical patient care and safety and quality perspective, it presents a challenge to any organization that is is accountable for the total care, quality, cost, outcomes, et cetera. So that's the first challenge. The other challenge is from a financial perspective, what I remember and I recall from being in that organization was, you know, we would have patients that occasionally would go to very, very high cost centers and not necessarily, in fact, not any better than our centers. We, we had world-class centers. It was uh, we would argue ours were better than others. They would argue theirs was better, but there was no way to tell the one was better than the other. But but they would go to these expensive centers. And and I remember one patient who went to have neurosurgery, brain surgery at another center. And we had we had a full staff of neurosurgeons and brain surgeons that were world-class. And here we are paying full-time for our surgeons and they're going outside using another set. So we had to write a check every time a patient went outside while we're paying our own staff. So it actually elevates and inflates the cost of care, which doesn't serve anyone well. And so, you know, between the care coordination and quality and outcomes, and by the way, just again, in terms of inefficiencies, if the patient would go outside of our system, we had to collect all that information, go back, get their records, get them faxed, scan them in. Our doctors and staff would have to figure out what happened. There'd be phone calls. And so it, it really complicates care. So people may not be aware of when you are actually accountable, fully accountable for a patient, whether you're in a accountable care organization or capitated payment or Medicare Advantage, these issues become really, really critical. And I think they're, you know, again, from just from a pure patient perspective and patient care perspective, I think it's critical. One question though, people may be wondering about is, well, don't we have these HIEs, you know, these, you know, kind of electronic interoperable interfaces. And so where we are all connected uh, through statewide HIEs. And so what's your, what's your take on that? How, how well does that work if it works at all? And I know you, you pointed out the fact that a lot of the time there's a lag in all of this. Yeah. No, so I think there's a lot of variability state by state and region by region for the degree to which HIEs are meeting the provider-to-provider -provider interoperability needs, most notably the event notifications or the electronic notifications to, to track admission discharges and transfers. And six years ago, when I was thinking about this problem, I would say there was 
you know, a lot less sort of sophistication with health information exchanges capabilities and what they were bringing to market. And today, I think that the market has matured slowly. And I think there are some states that have collected the data. They've spent a lot of time centralizing a repository of data across all of the different health systems and and provider organizations. And the data feed that we use, just to be more specific, is called an ADT feed, which stands for Admission, Discharge, and Transfer. And that's something that virtually all electronic medical records produce. It's a, a pretty basic kind of standard HL7 feed that can be emitted by many different health systems and, and electronic medical records. There are many HIEs in the country that have aggregated that data. But aggregating the data is really just it's just one part of the process to generate an event notification. You know, you need to be able to load a patient roster. You need to be able to create a lot of flexibility to what uh, patients go on the roster and how frequently you change patients. You know, let's say you were, you were talking about the patient who is a you know, a candidate for, for neurosurgery. And at what point do you trigger that that's somebody who you want a notification on? It could just be based on DRG that you automatically collect from a consult. And now they're on a patient roster and then you, you want to track any care that that patient has received for say, you know, a period of 120 days or a year, depending on kind of the nature of their, their condition. That's a whole process. That's a whole technology experience that, that needs to be created. Once that's actually rendered, uh, once that process is sort of is sort of facilitated, the way that the notifications are consumed can take many different uh, formats. So it can just be an outbound pipe of data that goes into another care management system, and that requires integration between, say, the data provider of the ADT feeds and the care management system or the population health management system that any given health system or provider organization may be using. Others may want to consume just a text message or an email or they want to use a a flexible kind of low cost, they may not have an actual care management system because it's too expensive, or they may not need it because they don't have a huge population health management budget. And so they'll, they'll want a lighter, you know, kind of simpler solution. And so workflow integration for the event notifications uh, takes many, many forms. And being able to sort of deliver that in a way that anybody can consume and, you know, and actually act on uh, is a whole nother experience. And so one of the things that we talk about a lot is building amazing products. We we use an analog of Google Maps where there used to be federal agencies that would would launch satellites, or still are, that would take geolocation information. So they would take pictures of, you know, of all the roads and the buildings that were the businesses that were sort of there. And then Google, what they're very good at is building these extraordinary consumer products that we love to use on our cell phones and on our computers. And what, so what Google does is in the early days is they partnered with these federal agencies that had the data, but then they built these amazing products using that data. So we do the same thing with, with a lot of health information exchanges where we'll partner with them and bring to life a lot of the data that may have collected. And we've done between seven and 10 HIE partnerships now across the country. And we, we love working with HIEs uh, to support that. In some markets, there isn't an HIE. And so we'll you know, build the infrastructure to the extent that's required and needed for the for the region. I love that analogy you just made with uh, Google Maps and how, you know, the government had all the data and had a lot of the pipes laid down, but it really wasn't oriented to anyone. The consumer interface wasn't there and you've created that and offer different levels of consumer opportunities. And that's a really good lead in because I'd love for you to share an example of a, of a real life implementation of patient paying away a hospital system or care management or uh, someone is using it and how they're getting, what does it look like for the people who are, let's say a patient who ends up going to an ED or somewhere else? And what options does, uh, you know, we're in fact using patient paying and we're using it with our patients who are in value-based contracts where we are accountable for quality and cost, as well as in certain high-risk patients like our sickle cell patients who are frequently ending up in emergency rooms. And so so I'm curious how, you know, if you could paint a picture of what that looks like for the users. Yeah, I'll describe this as a, there, there's many health systems that use us in a similar vein, but I'll describe generic health system, you know, generic health system X, which there's many that I could that I could describe in kind of a, in a similar vein. UMass, Steward, Healthcare here in Massachusetts, Atrium, and you know, on our website we've got many case studies on uh, our our customers are using it. So one group, so they have um, kind of a centralized command center 
for population health, where they've got a team that triages cases, and they've got several programs. One is a a SNF post-acute care, principally SNF length of stay. So they have two main sort of um, quality improvement and cost reduction opportunities on the post-acute side. One is routing patients to home care when it is a an alternative as opposed to a SNF, because that's a lower cost opportunity. The patient gets to be at home. And then when they are in the SNF, they work on managing down length of stay. As we know, there's no copay from the patient until day 21 in the SNF. And then at day 30, the rate typically drops for what the SNF is being reimbursed. So the average length of stay for patients in skilled nursing tends to be between 21 and and 30 days, just because that's how the incentives are aligned. But many clinicians would say that a patient doesn't necessarily need to be in a SNF for for 20 days. Many In many instances, they do, and maybe they need to be there much longer than 30 days. But in, in many instances, they may not need to be there for, for up to 20 days, yet we're paying $500 a day for the patient when they could be at home and supported by home care. So reducing SNF length of stay represents a pretty meaningful cost savings opportunity for, for ACOs that are managing the Medicare fee-for-service lives. And so what that health system does, just locking in on the SNF length of stay problem, is they get a ping that the patient is in a SNF. And what's most important for them is when a patient arrives at a SNF from a hospital that, that they don't have in their network. So it's not their own hospital. They don't own the hospital. It's a competitor hospital. So they go to a competitor hospital and they show up at the SNF. And what they do then is review the care plan. Typically, they won't do that on the first day. They'll do that on day seven or day 10 because you know the first seven days, the patient's getting set up in their care. And if there's a candidate to, to manage down the length of stay from 20-ish days to 14 or, or even seven, then that's really when the, the, you know, kind of the coordinated care planning can, can start occurring. So they'll round. What they do is there's a centralized care management staff that will triage the events that of patients showing up in the SNF. They will then, they've kind of got like a zone defense style coverage of their case managers across the Massachusetts region. I'm thinking about a health system in Massachusetts. And those various care coordinators, oftentimes nurses, will work those cases. And so they'll just go through the different facilities that they'll round at, and they will review the care plans and make sure that the patient is still in need of services at the skilled nursing. And if they need more services, then they'll encourage the additional stay. And if they need less services, they'll just coordinate with skilled nursing facility staff to, to transition the patient into home care or directly to home. So that's just something that one health system does. Another Uh, Another example is patients who are in the ER. You know, we have a group that's working patients who are in the ER. They they were able to see that patients who have five or more ED visits have about $120,000 in spend after the fifth ED visit. So this is a super high utilizer population. And 70 to 80% of them have serious mental illness. 40 to 50% have substance use disorder. um, And 10 to 20% of these patients are, are homeless. And um, what they found is that when the patient presents in the ED, it really is within the time that they are actually in the waiting room, in the ED, that the intervention needs to be deployed. Otherwise, it's too late. Once they've left the emergency room, it's very, very hard to engage the patient in their, in their care plan. So they have an ED to home program. Basically, there's a lot of patients who show up in the ED that can held in the, in the inpatient in, in observation or they'll be admitted just because the ED doesn't necessarily have an alternative. They don't know what to do. Uh, they don't know where to send the patient. They're worried about liability and, and what will happen to the patient. And so they'll keep them in, in a hospital stay for a few days. And so this is a very high touch care management program that, uh, as I said, their program is, is called ED to Home. And they will engage the patient while they're in the ED, support them with behavioral health services to the extent that they can facilitate that. They have to actually have their own behavioral health care service providers they have very deep connections into food and, and transport and legal services and you know other social determinants of health that they can link the patient into to get them set up at home and you know kind of in services to prevent uh, them from bouncing back to the ER. But the key is the real-time nature of it. And the way the patient ping, though, as you were saying before, there's the two parts. There's the ping and the story. My understanding is that, again, from a customer perspective, the hospital, the care management, the physician, you can decide and say, look, you know, when my patient ends up in any facility, I'm going to get pinged or my nurse is going to get pinged or my care manager or case manager or social worker, someone's going to get pinged to know, hey, they literally just showed up in real time 
And that gives you, first of all, real-time information and gives you the opportunity to intervene in real time. If I want to send a nurse down, if it's in the patient showing up in RED or in another ED nearby, you know, or SNF or anywhere, I could send, I could literally intervene. I could call up. I can, you know, I could have that communication real time where they are right now, because I know that. So that's the ping part. The story part is that for instance, in the ED, you know, part of the problem is that, uh, and I, I know this from many years of practicing in emergency rooms, you don't know, did this patient show up in another ED? And if they did, what happened? What transpired? And so you get this, this you know, multiple MRIs, multiple CAT scans, multiple, you know, surgical consults, uh, cardiology consults, specialty consults. And by having the ping story, so you have the, the sort of a short form of what actually the patient's background you know, who their primary provider or, you know, what, what specialty clinic uh, they belong to. And so there's, there's a story that now the provider, whether they be in a SNF or ED or anywhere for that matter, can actually see that. And that's, that's another sort of consumer service that Ping offers. And so, so I just want you to kind of expand upon that a little bit. Yeah, exactly. So using that example of the ED to home program. So in the ED setting, what we would do is, you know, in the EHR, on the ED track board, so that's the main view that is oftentimes projected up on the wall in the ED and, you know, what, what sort of the, the main census of everybody who's filling the, you know, 20 to 70 beds, depending on how big the ED is, will have uh, an icon that says, hey, there's, there's a story available on this patient. And so it'll flag things like prior ED utilization. It'll say, hey, this patient's actually in your ED right now, but they've been in, you know, say five other EDs in the past three months, and you'll be able to see which EDs they've been in, why they showed up at those EDs. Uh, we'll, we'll say if they're part of um, a care program. So they may be at, you know, an atrium ED, but they're actually part of, say, you know, Wake Forest Baptist ACO program. Now, you may know that that may be helpful for the case manager in the ED uh, to be able to see that there's actually care management or care coordination support uh, to support this patient. And then reciprocally, if, if one of your patients or one of Atrium's patients were to show up in, in another facility, they would, they would see that they have services available uh, from one of the community providers. And, you know, we'll say who the, that person is, who the contact information is, if they've had prior post-acute utilization, that's very useful for them. And, you know, we have a number of other flags that'll be included. We can load a, a care plan in there as well. That is a community court curated care plan, or it's a deduced care plan from a payer or other system that may have a care plan that we can feed into uh, the ED workflows, a number of other specialty flags that are useful. But it's, it's essentially, our job is to curate a set of content that isn't just noise for the ED provider, but it's actually helpful. And so we work with the different emergency room. In, in North Carolina, for instance, we're working on a, or we've rolled out an opioid peer support program. So sometimes the patient will actually have a sponsor or has a sponsor eligible for them to, to help them with any drug addiction or opioid addiction issues, and that, that would render in the story. So yeah, so it, it, it's very helpful in particular for transitioning patients to the home setting uh, as opposed to the inpatient setting by providing targeted contextual information for the ED providers, both the case managers as well as the clinicians to the extent useful for the clinical workflow to support that transition of care. One of the functions I know our care managers absolutely love about this is when they get a, a ping or they get a, the data in real time, they could see not only how many ED visits a patient has had, but there are flags, as you said. And so some patients are flagged as high risk and they're, you know, based on certain parameters. And so they really, they like that for lots of reasons. One of which is even when patients come in, get admitted to our hospitals and the floor care managers are looking to see how much support do I need to begin from day one, the first moment of, you know, after admission, what do I need to, to mobilize? And as opposed to waiting till the patient's ready to go, which is too late and could postpone discharge and, and all that. So they're, they're really enamored with the fact that right away they can look at patient ping and it really, it not only tells them the real-time activity, not just in our system, but outside of our system, how many visits, ED visits, et cetera, this patient has had sniff visits, et cetera, but it also provides some sort of level of risk categorization that really allows them to take some some action immediately upon admission to the hospital. So, you know, the, the, the opioid thing you mentioned is a really... I hadn't thought about that as much, but but given the the crisis we're in, the epidemic we're in right now, where again people who are you know seeking medications or drugs, and 
you know, going from ED, ED, hopping from hospital to hospital. I mean, and it's really challenging to know, you know, what their background is, especially if they're leaving the state. And I think a product like you have here would be huge uh, in terms of helping to provide information and provide more coordinated care, especially if they're in a program where you could reach out to that program. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are, you know, when a patient presents for abdominal uh, pain and multiple EDs, um, that may be an indication that either they're not getting the, the care and the treatment and the support that they need, or it may be that there there's a, a possible abuse issue. And so we'll, we'll surface that just to be able to have a more constructive conversation with the patient, get them in medication-assisted therapy if there are certified clinicians, you know, within the community, even outside the community or, or within the health system or other services. And so we, we are... PDMP, the control substance databases, are doing a really good job of integrating in now to the EHRs to be able to see prior controlled controlled substance prescription behaviors. And you know there there are markets where we're able to you know feed uh, additional context of prior opioid or controlled substance use into the into the story. But it, that, that's really just a question of, of UI and, and how it is that the health system wants to consume it. Um, if there, some may already be getting that integrated within their EHR. But yeah, no, it, it is, you know, just the, the point is that, you know, patient ping isn't going to help. We, we're not necessarily going to help everybody. If you're not in need of coordination of care because you're getting care from one health system and, you know, your care is, is you don't, you don't get that frequent care, you, you know, generally healthy person, you, you don't need a lot of coordination of care. But for those patients who, you know, multiple comorbidities, chronic conditions, complex needs, economic kind of vulnerability where they get care you know, primary care from their EDs, high amount of post-acute care needs. So, you know, for continuity after some acute episode, those are the patients who, who I think really benefit from, from coordination of care. In terms of the specific outcomes, how do you, how does, how do you measure success? How do your customers, your provider organizations that you're working with, how do they measure success? What's the return on investment, so to speak? We are a horizontal capability, meaning we, we provide notifications and stories for patients that facilitate a wide range of programs. And those programs may be, like I said, routing patients to home care as opposed to SNF whenever possible. So then our success metric would be, is our data plus your programs facilitating that sort of site of care pivot? Another program, we facilitate a SNF length of stay reduction. Others are ED to inpatient, you know, avoidable admissions through the ED. Others are absolute ED utilization. Some are just, you know, pure readmissions that they're trying to curb. And so we have analytics and reporting that we provide to our customers so that they can see in real time how those numbers are moving and our workflow products are facilitating those different programs. So it really does vary. So, you know, if you're a skilled nursing facility that's using our service, they're using it really to drive volume to their facility in the event that they're the clinically appropriate destination as opposed to the hospital. So it helps the hospital because they can avoid a readmission. And for the SNF, they want to be able to pull that patient in for, for continuous care. If again, if that's what's medically appropriate. So it depends on the stakeholder that we're serving and the use case that they are looking to solve for. And then we, we, we make sure that they're able to see very clearly the extent to which they're built, you know, sort of delivering um, on that goal. Yeah, and in terms of in terms of delivering on on those outcomes, whether they be ED utilization, admissions, readmissions, reduced length of stay in nursing homes, are you building up evidence of the value proposition here? Uh, has anyone published on this yet? Where, where are you along that journey? Oh my God, yeah, we have dozens and dozens of customer driven uh, ROI case studies, and they're on our they're on our website of. SNF length of stay reductions, ED utilization reductions, ED to hospital conversion reductions, readmission reductions, home health research rates coming down across the board. The thing that we're most excited about is actually community-wide downshifting of utilization for the overall, for, you know, uh, improved outcomes. So what I mean by that is if you think about Uber Lyft is a good, is a good analog. So they you know, on an, on an individual person level, what they do is they, you know, save you time. Like that's, they save the driver time or they save the rider time and they, they make the driver some money. But at a, at a regional level, you know, what their impact often is, is fewer cars are on the road, which means energy emissions are just carbon dioxide emissions are coming down. 
there's more parking space available. Just, you know, there's sort of an overall community impact. So for us, what we think about is, yes, every single one of our customers at the health system or the post-acute or the payer, you know, kind of wherever it may be, is deriving an ROI from our services. But we want to have a regional impact that reduces costs and improves quality. And so we look at, you know, is overall ED utilization in the region coming down? Is patients who their average bundle of consumption for healthcare was, say, three ED visits in a year and one hospitalization and 25 days in a sniff and one home health visit or two home health episodes. Is the average skewing towards lower cost settings so that the aggregate cost of those services is coming down while still protecting quality? That's something that we're starting to put some some analytical and kind of research resources against to see what our kind of community-wide impact is. That's what that's when I would say we would we would be proud of our impact and, and we're starting to see, you know, real evidence of that. I love that broader community focus. And now who would be the who would be the customer there? Who would be the interested stakeholder in that? It would be a payer, it would be a state, quality improvement organizations like associations, medical societies. If you're trying to see your, you know, that that's the thing about our, our services is that as the providers succeed in achieving their outcomes from the, the services that we're facilitating. The region, and it tends to be the payers principally, and the payers and the employers really benefit because you get higher quality care for lower costs. That's sort of the business that we're in. You know, this this issue of collecting data, I know that you're uh, advancing the technology and creating new services or opportunities like the one you were just describing. What What's going on in terms of your ability to collect data and, and how are you beginning to think about that and what might you be offering uh, that you currently aren't offering or haven't been offering in the past? I think what we are doing is collecting. So what, what patient ping is doing is that, you know, within a region, we're engaging providers at all the different destinations that a patient may receive care. And we're, we're getting real-time visibility into where the patients are receiving care. So the way, way we think about it is, you know, by, by knowing where patients are, now we have an opportunity to really influence and support where patients go and how they receive care. By understanding the patterns in utilization, the various routes that patients take to receive care, uh, we think over time we'll be able to support and guide the care transitions in a way that gets the patients back into uh, the community setting you know, as quickly as possible. So that may sound somewhat elusive, but I'll, I'll give you a specific product that we're thinking about bringing to market called callouts. And what callouts would be is Essentially, there's three aspects of callouts. One is it would be kind of a pop, there's sort of the ability for a population to say, uh, meaning a population manager. So let's say it's a, a payer or an ACO to say, hey, these are all my patients and I want anybody who sees this patient to know something about them. Uh, so that would create an opportunity. And we, we'd kind of do that today already, but it would, it would create an opportunity for Atrium to say, hey, this is my patient. I know some things about them and I want everybody who sees that patient to follow these instructions. And we can make those a lot more intelligent. The second is a patient level call out. So it would be, hey, this patient's in, you know, in your emergency room, here's a care plan. They're a high risk patient in our sickle cell program. Here's some information that's gonna be useful for you. It'd be a, sort of a derived experience. And the third would be imputed call out. So, hey, oh, we see the patients in the emergency room right now. Well, they've had five other ED visits and actually, They've been in the SNF in at some time in the in the past uh, two years. Why don't we help you make an appointment for them? So it sort of just walks people to the place where the care transition is just a lot more seamless, a lot more fluid, and we use our intelligence. So we, we're you know we want to put machine learning, artificial intelligence on the data that we're we're collecting so that we can help support the next best action. So hey, this is where the patient should go. Here's what we'd like. Here's what we think is the best thing to do, and we just make that very seamless for the provider to facilitate that transition. Wow, that, that sounds so futuristic, and yet it sounds like it's within our grasp pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, I mean, it's really exciting. I mean, the imagery of that, of having, you know, it's almost, you know, in my mind, I see this, you know, in every individual with a continuous line and, and where they're, where they actually show up in these facilities, whatever the healthcare facility is. And I imagine with, with machine learning, you can start to actually understand those patterns and understand what, what's better for patients, what's worse for patients on certain, certain characteristics. It, it, it really could change, you know, patterns of care and patterns of referral, I think. Is that, is that too far-fetched? Or? 
No, no. I mean, you should expect stories and pings. So, you know, the way we think about it is stories engages the treating provider. So the person is physically with the patient and pings activates the care team. That's everybody who's not with the patient who's part of the patient's care team. Right now, it's just data that we're facilitating in each of those different experiences. But we believe that those experiences will get a lot smarter over time, where we will be able to predict, advance, recommend, and just help the provider take friction out of it and help the uh, patient just have a much better experience so that you know, they're here to manage. You know, and this goes back to what I when I was introducing this topic and introducing you, this idea of a family of brands, new companies that are emerging. And I would, I would put patient ping in this category of really highly generative. And, and I, I think from my perspective, and I actually even said this in the, in the book I wrote, Reframing Healthcare, this is probably the most value-laden brand category of all the brand categories in healthcare, because it really creates the opportunity for much more connected, coordinated, seamless, uh, contextual care. And I think you're you're painting a picture of both the the ping, which, you know, as you say, anyone who's involved in that patient's care can know, hey, they showed up here, whereas that really wasn't known before and definitely wasn't known in real time. And if it was known, it would require a human being to be able to reach out to another human being, which, you know, in the midst of very, very uh, complicated, high risk pressured situations probably doesn't happen very much. And, and, and so it's that ping part, but the story part, as you're saying, is all of a sudden you can put information in front of the person who's now seeing the patient that before they wouldn't have had. And I would venture to say, even, even if it was in the same system, you know, they'd have to go through the, the electronic medical record and kind of call out information, but you're creating information that's actually packaged and contextual for this specific purpose. And as you're saying now with machine learning, you could add other information to this story so that the person who's sitting with the patient in that moment really has a different picture and sense of it. And so the patient, the ping and the story are, are, are to me really typify the value proposition of this new brand category, which I don't think really existed before, because I'm not sure that I would, I would say electronic medical records were an evolution towards that, but not really there yet. So I'm curious, I know I just said a lot, but I'm curious about, you know, how you feel about this brand category I've outlined. Does that, you know, would you agree, disagree in what ways and, and, and even the evolution of the medical record? Yeah. So I'll offer an, an analog maybe as a way to, to characterize it. I think, you know, the analog I use is, is Microsoft Word versus Google Docs. So, and that may be the appropriate analog here is, you know, Microsoft Word did a really amazing job of allowing us to write beautiful documents. You know, there's styles and there's multiple fonts and you could create section headers and, you know, title pages and, and just, you could create beautiful, beautiful documents with Word. But I think what Google realized is that what people typically do once you produce a document is you send it to somebody and you ask them to read it. And a lot of times you ask them to edit it and comment on it and then send it back and then you edit it again. And so Google, uh, when they built their productivity suite, said, We're, we get that the process of writing the document is important. But what's more important is the sharing of the document and the coordination around the document. And so if you look at Google's feature stack, it's, you know, it's not that heavy on the production of documents, pretty bare bones. Like you can't really do a lot to make these beautiful documents, but what you can do extremely well is share the document with a link or through, you know, text or through email or through your mobile app. And then you can curate, kind of co-curate a document really easily together as a team. And, you know, that, that team can extend within your four walls or it can extend outside your four walls. And they've just really optimized the experience of collaboration. We think the same is happening with electronic medical records is, you know, these Epic and Cerner have done an amazing job of digitizing medical information. They've figured out a way to get it all in a, in a structured digital format that now, you know, there, there's an entirely new category that I would say emerging to then thread that across care teams and create real experiences around it so that care transitions are more seamless scheduling, communication, referrals, outreach, uh, patient engagement. Like there's so many things that are really fundamentally about the movement of the data and the coordination around the data and the collaboration around the data with the patient at the center of it all. 
and it extends well outside of the boundaries of any given health system or any you know provider organization. So we're very excited about sort of advancing health records towards that direction. And, and honestly, this is the history of software. If you look at most other industries, when when Salesforce came and brought the cloud to the enterprise resource uh, planning software, they were able to basically create a layer. So the history of software is in stacks. So to me, like the idea of building a layer on top of the existing infrastructure of uh, data repositories, which is what EHRs are, to connect them and thread them together with really kind of consumer-oriented, user-first product experiences. And for us, the thread is really the fact that care is across settings and it is a collaborative experience. And so you need to build those experiences that make that a lot more seamless. There's two questions that come off as I'm listening to you for me. One is you, you talked about uh, in the past when we've corresponded, you've talked about this opportunity for, for this need for consumer grade products and services in healthcare. And so let me ask that first. It seems that that's exactly what you're doing. It's, you know, a lot of the data collection, the data entry, uh, the data repositories, a lot of that was laid down, even the data transfer to a certain extent. But you've, as you maybe this is the stack you're talking about, you've overlaid a, a consumer orientation to it in terms of helping people actually solve problems, clearly create value for the, the people, the providers who are accountable for care, but also clearly create value for the people who are receiving care. So is this sort of consumer design orientation? I mean, it sounds like this is what you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not one of those EHR haters. Like, I, I think that they played a very important role in the advancement of, you know, the, the provider enterprise in, in healthcare. And they digitized records, they've done it at, at alarming speed, and they really reacted and acted upon the incentives that were put in front of them, you know, both providers and the EHR companies. When the federal government comes in and puts something like meaningful use and says, this is exactly what you need the EHR to do and look like, and providers have their own interest in a fee-for-service construct to keep patients in network, well, obviously the outcome is going to be not much interoperability. It just, it makes sense that that's what we would get. Also, it would make sense that we're not going to get these delightful, you know, consumery applications because how can you innovate as a product management organization when you're told by the federal government what you need to build? So like, I think the system, the EHRs have built exactly what the system rewarded. Now, I think that the shift to value-based care, the relaxing of some of the meaningful use regulations, and I think a lot of what the federal government's doing around uh, promoting interoperability has been actually pretty good. And I'll, I'll, I'll comment on that for a, a second after I finish this, this thought, which is that now that that's the case, I think there is room for extraordinary innovation that's product-led, meaning you think hard about the user, you think hard about the customer, and really you're just focused on delivering value as opposed to checking the box on specifications that you know are, are needed to, to get a, you know, incentive payments. So I'm very excited about that. I don't think we're going to reskin the EHR anytime soon. I think the EHR is, that is where providers live. That's where they're going to live. And so we need to meet providers where they are. But gradually, I think there is an opportunity to upgrade that experience by just, you know, integrating on there. We use Smart on Fire as, as our protocols to sort of live in the HR environment. And we love doing that. So we're going to supplement and enhance and augment uh, over time. And it's interesting because I've heard that from other entrepreneurs talking about, you know, the need for an electronic health record. But then now the advancement of that uh, and sort of the next gen adding on top of it, maybe, as you say, sort of stacking on top of it, a more patient provider, consumer oriented set of services, as you say, consumer grade products and services that actually enhance the care and the communication and coordination and build upon what, what's already been said. But it, it is, you know, I've heard differences of, of opinion on this, but it doesn't, it doesn't obviate the need for an EHR. You still need an electronic medical record, but this is something different and serves a different purpose. And Again, some people might disagree with that, but I've, I've heard that same sort of picture from others as well. What about the issue of the social determinants of health? As you were talking before about this wonderful picture of really uh, being able to document, record where patients are going in a community or outside of the community in terms of, uh, of facilities and provider groups and, and recording information and, and the storyline have you thought about including purposefully, intentionally pieces of data that often aren't collected around 
the patient's ability for transportation, food issues, uh, issues around financial capabilities, safety, those sorts of things. Are, is that something that you've been thinking about, especially because I asked you this because you raised this issue of this, of bringing the community focus and a larger focus? Absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, fundamentally we support transitions of care and, you know, across provider coordination and provider is certainly not limited to medical provider. I think it, it includes the full range of services that keep somebody healthy. I, I've loved Dr. Mandy Cohen's uh, narrative around buying health versus buying health care because patients who are really in need who, who have complex needs, it starts with addressing the social determinants that affect their health so that the healthcare system can ultimately, you know, deliver, deliver high quality care that overall is at a lower cost. So examples of that is in, in the story, in the ED, we are uh, excited to partner and layer on social services directories and, and information that we can load into into the ED workflow, because that's oftentimes where if a patient's care is falling apart, you know, and, you know, they've sort of reached a point where they're not maintaining, you know, the care themselves, um, they may land in the ED. That's a place to then prop them back up, you know, and support them with the care that the community can uh, can provide to keep them out of the ED, you know, in the first place. So we're very deeply, you know, embedded within EDs and, you know, and our ability to sort of link the ED, and I'm not, I don't mean to narrow it just on the ED, it's other providers as well into the community settings. And that's, you know, food, housing, legal services, transportation, those are all really critical needs um, that need to be surfaced and made available to really anybody who's touching, you know, touching the patient over the course of their disability or illness. You know, even as you're talking, I'm, I'm seeing potentials and possibilities, which I suspect you've already thought many steps ahead into the future. And speaking of that, so is there anything we've, we've, left out here in terms of where you think this is going and the possibilities or another thought I had is a question I had for you is what, what are some big ahas? What, what are some major learnings and maybe some surprises that you're both good and bad that you're encountering? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, you know, in the early days and, and still to a certain degree, the, you know, the process of getting health systems that compete to share data with one another was was very hard and it still in many markets can feel hard but i don't i think that health systems and providers alike will all agree that you know if you're a primary care provider or a community community physician or care management organization and you want to know when the patient is discharged from the hospital so that you can manage that follow up and support it you know i think the 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 community across the board hospitals and other providers have acknowledged that that's a fundamental need if we want to move in this direction of value-based care. And so I was really excited to see the administration make that a priority. Um, so I, I don't know if folks uh, on, on the podcast are aware that CMS recently released a notice of proposed rulemaking to make it a condition of participation for hospitals to provide electronic notifications when any patient shows up at their hospital or gets discharged from their hospital to any care team member that has an interest in knowing that. Now, that's a big regulatory lever that CMS is using, and, and patient, ping, patient ping's role is not to opine on whether it should be a, a condition of participation or some other regulatory lever. I think that the broad notion that hospitals you know, are making this data available. And many of them have already acknowledged and are embracing that notion that, that the ADT feeds should be made available uh, to the providers who also share those patients. And so we're, we're very excited that this is something that the administration has taken on as a priority and will allow for, you know, an ecosystem to persist where anybody who wants to know about a, a discharge or an admin to a hospital will, will be able to. There are still some markets where, you know, we've got a post-acute provider in the community that wants to know when their patient shows up at a large academic medical center and the academic medical center or the for-profit hospital system will say, no, I don't want them to know because they may steal my patient. Now, I think everybody across the, the quality community has, has acknowledged and agreed that, that that shouldn't happen. And so Medicare has taken that on and, and made it their priority. So we're excited that it'll fuel an ecosystem to go even faster for this new emerging category and that innovators like like patient ping 
can more rapidly meet the needs of the industry. That's interesting. Do you think this this concept I was talking about before in terms of this family of of brands, these connectors and and coordinators, you know, I mean, you must, I mean, being in it, you must be looking left and right and behind you and up beside down, you know, there's just this influx of funding right now, capital being infused into healthcare. And this seems like a category of brand that just would, would make sense to really to, to invest in. And so are you seeing an influx of companies and entrepreneurs in this space, not, not necessarily in the sort of patient paying space, but in general, creating platforms rather than specific treatment protocols or condition specific type of protocols? Building a platform is hard. You know, there aren't a lot of platforms like true kind of in, by platform. The way I think about platform is that it's connecting disparate sides of any given network. Now that can be, you know, a payer and a provider. It could be, um, you know, a primary care provider and a specialist. It could be a, you know, hospital and a post-acute provider, or it could be all of the above. And there are networks and platforms uh, that exist in many other industries, Airbnb and, you know, Lyft and Instacart are all platforms that have connected two sides of a, of a market. So I think in healthcare, the, the prevailing dogma for provider or payer facing software products is that the sales cycle is long and it's very hard. And so if you're a venture capitalist or an investor trying to support that, it tends to be a race against time. Can the company win enough customers given the very complicated sales dynamics to, to not run out of money? And in, an, in a network effect business, one where you need to build a, a platform, now not only are you dealing with the problem of selling one health system, you have to sell multiple health systems or multiple providers within a region because otherwise the platform doesn't, doesn't work as well. So it's just, it's hard. And I think, you know, it, it really needs to be a very unique value proposition for the market that's timed well for, you know, for a platform to really, really thrive. I think there's a lot of conversation right now around uh, social determinants of health and there's, there's money uh, being put around investing and connecting the, you know, healthcare system to the support networks that exist. So social services, behavioral health providers to bridge that gap. And I think there's an opportunity there. Uh, there was a time where when DRGs were, were invented, really, where post-acute care became very relevant and, you know, connecting hospitals to post-acute care providers was very important. And, you know, m many referral management companies got or discharge planning companies got stood up. You know, I think we're, we're taking on something very audacious, which is connecting them all. Um, so post-acute and acute and ED and specialists and ambulatory and behavioral health providers, because I think that we've kept the product really light and, and able to kind of extend across all those different provider settings. But it, it's hard. And so, it, you know, in healthcare, it's often not the best product that that wins. It's really thoughtful go to market, you know, distribution strategy for how, how to actually build the network and then making sure that the product continues to meet the need uh, of where the, where the customer is. That's great. You're such a nice guy and, you know, you're so capable. Why, why are you doing this? I mean, I imagine there's quite a few different avenues you could have pursued and career paths. And why is this so, so important to you? To me, I don't know. I have this sort of attitude that I've got, you know, I'm 37 years old. I've got, hopefully, if I'm lucky, another 30 plus, 30 odd years of productive, you know, really productive professional energy to put towards something. And, and so I think a lot about impact and being able to actually make a difference. There was a time in my career where I was working in, I've always been in healthcare, but I was working on investing as a private equity investor in, you know, healthcare services businesses. So these were home health agencies and dialysis facilities. And I, I didn't really feel that energized by the mission of, of um, you know, many of those, particularly in a fee-for-service construct, it was very much about just sort of continuing to put heads in beds or, or people kind of hooked up into dialysis seats. It was a very kind of mechanical business. And there was good people really trying to do the right thing for, for the patients, but the system just didn't really reward it. So when value-based care sort of became a reality, I, I jumped at that opportunity to be part of that change in payment because I see how much payment influences uh, care delivery and just how the system organizes within communities. And so I got very excited about that. And now being on the right, right side of that, you know, improving quality, reducing costs as opposed to just increasing the cost, but not necessarily 
caring as much about quality, really just focusing on quality as a way to, to drive more volume. And, you know, as long as it keeps the volume moving, like, you know, quality doesn't really matter as much. I've been very, very energized by the opportunity to now really inverse that equation. And again, focus on improving quality, reducing costs, you know, so as I just sort of think about the next 30 years or so, I love technology. Uh, I I didn't, I kind of stumbled into technology. I didn't realize this was going to be my career, but you know, it's surrounded by extremely smart people. And that that's what I love about it most, you know, so I'm continuing to learn, continuing to have a platform for impact. And it's just, it's, it's a really wonderful way to be. Well, Jay, it, it is, I have to say it is uh, not only informing, but it is uh, inspiring and energizing to, to listen to you. I, I could spend so much more time picking your brain and talking to you. And it's been a pleasure, I have to say, just uh, having the opportunity to work with Patient Ping and your colleagues. So uh, it's great. And I just want to, in closing out, Jay, I always, and I I think you'll appreciate this, I always turn to the audience and I I take a moment to, to thank the folks out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients or, or those who are actually supporting the direct providers of care. You know, I truly appreciate uh, what you are doing, recognize how critically important the work is you're doing is for individuals, families, communities, or society. Also recognize how challenging it is. And as always, I hope this podcast episode provides you with useful information as well as encouragement and inspiration. And finally, this is Zev Neuwirth on creating new healthcare. Until next time, be well.